God's glory and his omnipotence, his all knowledge, as he revealed hundreds and hundreds of years in advance all of the things that we need to know, that anybody needs to know about Jesus Christ. We're going to be in the prophecy of Isaiah for the ten Sunday nights that I'll be preaching during these summer months. And from Isaiah, we are going to see the story of the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Tonight, as we begin, I want to read the passage that we'll be concerned with, Isaiah 7, 14, and then Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. Isaiah 7, 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation. Thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil... For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish all this. Isaiah prophesied during very troubled times. When Isaiah was ministering, there was a struggle going on in the ancient world for supremacy. The principles in this struggle were Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt. They were jockeying for position. They would trade victories in battles and almost regularly one would gain a territory that the other one had held. There was a constant struggle for one of them to come out on top and to overcome the other two. In this world, Israel seemed to be merely a pawn as she seems in the eyes of many today to be merely a pawn in world politics. Israel blocked the way to the riches of the Near East for the ones who desired to capture the wealth that the world offered if it could be conquered. Israel seemed only to be a piece of land to be uh, fought over with the victor to take the spoils. And it was into this very troubled time 
that God gave the most majestic of all of the prophecies, that God began 750 years before the birth of Jesus Christ to unravel before unknowing minds the truth about his son. And it was into this time that God sent the prophecy of Isaiah with its promise of ultimate deliverance. God came into the most unlikely of all times. As long as it falls out there, I'm not worried. Well, where was I? You know, God has an amazing sense of timing. I don't know if that's what I was going to say, but that's a good thing to say. God came with the prophecy of Isaiah at a time when the prophecy and the promises of God seemed very unlikely that they would ever come to pass. God, as we read the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, says to the rulers of the world, the Lord God of Israel laughs at you. You who fancy you have so much power, you are only a tool in his hand to bring judgment on the wicked world. And it was into the very troubled time when it seemed impossible and unlikely that it would ever come to pass that God sent the beautiful message of ultimate deliverance and that God chose to write the biography of Jesus Christ. Tonight, in this passage from Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7, I want us to consider the first of the matters that Isaiah deals with when he talks about the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight we consider the ministry of Christ, the ministry of Christ. Notice, first of all, we read Isaiah 7, 14. This one verse and the passage in chapter 9 will constitute the message tonight. I would say, first of all, talking about the ministry of Christ, that he is the only hope. When we get to Isaiah chapter 7, we're shook up. Isaiah has himself gone through a time of turmoil, and in chapter 6 he confesses that in the year that his cousin, the king, had died, he was shattered and broken, and in that tumult of personal grief, he discovered the Lord in a new and a living and a vital way. And Isaiah has observed that the situation is hopeless that no man can unravel it, that Israel is without hope unless God intervenes. And at this time, Isaiah verbalizes what is the only hope for Israel, indeed for mankind. As he says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel into a world of unprecedented trouble, God offered a new solution, a solution that no one had ever heard of before and that no one had ever dared to think might be possible. For the name Emmanuel means the God who is with us. And indeed, as we look around the world as troubled today as it was then, we can recognize that the only hope for this world lies in the God who is with us, the God who is one of us. How often prior to this promise, God had let man uh, go 
without full punishment of his sins. How often God had dealt with man in great love. God had let man try repeatedly to take care of his own needs to handle his own problems. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the perfect environment, during that period of time we call the dispensation of innocence, they had only one requirement, only one stipulation, only one thing to do, and that was very simply just to obey God one day at a time. God gave them the freedom of the beautiful garden. God arranged it so that the earth would bring forth its bounty. They wouldn't have to work. There was no war with the elements, no struggle with the animals, no hot, no cold, no rain, no snow, nothing to trouble them at all. All they had to do was obey God. But even in a simple and perfect world with but one forbidden thing, Mankind, in curiosity, could not resist the temptation to disobey God. After the period of innocence, there came the period of conscience when God began to forgive the sins of Adam and Eve. God told them they would know within themselves what was right. He would plant within them an awareness of good and evil. And they were, during this period of time, merely to do good. But we read that the flood was judgment on this dispensation of conscience. For man, rather than doing good, even in his fallen state, merely responding to his conscience went from bad to worse. And man created in thought of evils that God had hoped the world would never see. After the flood, there was the period of human government. And during this time, Noah and his family were under orders to replenish the earth and to have dominion and control over the earth and to rule it in God's will. But scarcely had the earth dried when Noah himself began the downward spiral by becoming drunken in his tent. And his pride was his failure. There was the period of promise during which God made an agreement with his chosen people, the Hebrews. And during this period of promise, the covenant God made was, I will be in charge, and all you have to do is follow me and do what I say and obey me. But even though God restored the chosen people to the land of promise, still they did not follow and obey him. There was the dispensation of law which endured from the Ten Commandments to the death of Jesus Christ. And during this period of time, God said, all right, you want more help. You want to know what to do and what not to do. I will tell you what is right and what is wrong. And so God gave the law through Moses. And all that a man had to do during that period of time was to obey the law, to keep the law. But human history during the period of the law 
is written page after page with broken promises, with the broken laws of God, with God being ignored. And so God had run out of solutions. Man had exhausted all of his opportunities. God had done everything with man that he could do, and there became a necessity for a permanent solution. It was into a world where the chosen people were reaping the harvest that they had sown in sin and disobedience and rebellion that Isaiah told them of the only hope, which was to be that God himself would be with us. God had to do it himself. There was no other way and as we consider the ministry of Christ, let us be aware that He is the only hope. The brightness of dawn that came with the prophecy that His name would be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. Then in Isaiah chapter 9, notice in verses 2 and 3, here I have said, He, the Lord Jesus, is the only light. This prophecy, these specific verses were quoted by the gospel writers as a fulfilled prophecy when the Lord Jesus came. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. The nation will multiply a gladness will increase because of His presence. He is the only light. From the dawn of sin, man had dwelt in the darkness of sin, of his own depraved nature that had rejected God and that had turned aside to go after his own desires. I am reminded that in the realm of nature, Life cannot exist without light. There would be no life if there were no light. And so it is that the Scriptures say men without God are dead in trespasses and sins. Dead, separated, without life. And a dying race frantically has sought and continues to seek light. But the only things that man can find, the only products of his own efforts, are the products of darkness, the products of despair. But with the coming of Christ, it was a part of his ministry that those all who had dwelt sin-sick, covered by darkness and despair, saw a great light, a light shining that cannot be extinguished. In the prologue to his gospel, John says that the light shined and that the darkness could not overcome it. In Revelation, we see him still as the light. As John writes in the Revelation that the Lamb himself 
will be their light and there will be no need for the sun by day nor the moon by night for he himself is the eternal light in the perfect city where we shall reign with him. He is the only hope. He is the only light. And with light comes the possibility of great joy. With light comes the availability of life. And as John wrote in his first epistle, not to be in the light, not to abide in the light, is to dwell in the darkness and never to have known light is there no joy then perhaps there is no light is there no victory then perhaps there is no life for Jesus himself he is the only light then notice in verses 4 and 5 he is the only victory the only victory Isaiah addressing him says you shall break the yoke of their burden, the staff on their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressors. When Isaiah wrote, Israel was surrounded by great enemies. She was caught in the middle among great nations vying for world supremacy. They considered her merely a pawn in a chess game, merely a tool to be used for a purpose, merely an object to be fought for. And today, I touched on it a moment ago, the powers of the world see Israel as a prize to be fought over. I read a story that had come from a man in the government and one of the statements that he made was, Israel blocks the way of Russia in her quest for the riches of Africa. And so today, for the nation Israel, it is the same. Surrounded by great world powers, how can they win? But Isaiah says maybe they can't win, but God can't lose. And after all, that is the issue, the power of God. And so it is with the church. Paul says we live in a world where what is really going on is a struggle between goodness and evil, between the darkness and the light, between the powers of God and the power of his enemy. And we in the church are engaged in a struggle for the eternal souls of men. How can we win? How can we compete with the world and all of its allurements with the power of Satan who is called the prince of this world. We can't, but God can't lose. God can't lose. It is the same. He is the only victory. We're involved in an eternal struggle, yes, but the battles have already been fought and they have already been won. We resemble sometimes soldiers in the winning army who are out trying to fight a war that is already over. We are not told to fight the enemy. We are not told to struggle with the powers of this world on behalf of God. We are told that Jesus has met the enemy and defeated him and that his victory belongs to us. His victory is ours. 
Christ met Satan. And all that happens as history works toward its climax is anticlimactic to the victory that was won on the cross and at the empty tomb that ensured the victory of God and the victory of his people for all time. And so in the struggle for victory, lean not on the arm of man, scriptures say, for the arm of flesh will fail you. Lean rather on the Lord. Often what God says seems very unreasonable. Jeremiah was called before the king while the city was under siege. Outside of his walls at Jerusalem, there dwelt the great Assyrian army. The city had been under siege for so long that they had no water, they had no food, they had nothing to eat, they were starving and had degenerated into cannibalism. Jeremiah told the king before noon tomorrow the economy will revive, the enemy will be gone and there will be more food than we can eat. And the captain in the guard of the king turned to Jeremiah and said, it could not possibly happen. Jeremiah says, the Lord God Jehovah says it shall happen, but you shall not see it. And that night, the angel of the Lord made the enemy hear the noise of a coming army that was not there. And all of Assyria fled for home, leaving behind their riches, their chariots, their horses, their gold and silver, and all of their food. And before noon the next day, the problem was completely alleviated. But you see, man's extremity is God's opportunity. God did not intervene for Israel in that instance until Israel had come to an awareness that she could do nothing for herself. And God will not intervene in your life or in the collective life of our church until we realize that it all depends on God. Grasp for human situations grasp for human solutions rather, continue to look for a pragmatic and a logical way, deny the power of God, deny the Word. And God will wait until we are so far down that only He can help us and then He will intervene. I am persuaded that the God who parted the Red Sea and brought Jesus from the dead can handle anything we need. Amen? He is the only victory. How can we win? How can we compete? We can't, but God can't lose. And then notice in verse 6, He is the only salvation. He is the only salvation. He is my God. He is my deliverer, my light. He is the only hope, but he can only be my Savior if He becomes made in the warp and woof of humanity like I am in all points yet without sin. He can still be God. He can still be the deliverer. He can still be the hope and the light 
But to be the Savior, he had to become a man. For in God's perfect universe, for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Sin demanded punishment. There was only one way that you and I could be delivered from the punishment of sin. God himself had to take that punishment. I can pay for my own sins, but if I pay, the price will be eternity separated from God. But Jesus, because he was God yet man, he was human as we are, yet he never sinned, his sacrifice at the cross pays the eternal debt of our sins. He is the only salvation he is God in the flesh the child once said Jesus was God with skin on he is man as God created him to be do you want to see the possibilities a man has as he gives his life to God then look at Jesus Christ for Jesus was God the way man was man the way God intended him to be Jesus was what God wanted every man to be. And Jesus is what every man can be in eternity with the free gift of salvation as we reach out and accept his sacrifice and make it our own. He is the only salvation. Listen to his credentials in verse 6. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He is the only salvation. And there will never be peace on earth until it comes on the terms of the Prince of Peace. When he comes, to establish his kingdom and to assert his right to the throne that he won at the cross. And then notice in verse 7, his is the only kingdom. His is the only kingdom. All of the nations of man, all of the kingdoms of the earth are merely a drop in the bucket. They are merely a temporary thing. All will pass away and the only kingdom belongs to him. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. His is the only kingdom how sweet it is to hear that when earth perishes, when moral collapse finally ruins the earth, and when God withdraws his staying hand of the Holy Spirit and raptures the church and the world degenerates to new lows when it is all over and he has come to call a halt to it, his will be the kingdom and there will be no end of it. For his is the only kingdom why do we need to fear? Why do we need to be anxious? Jesus said, do not fear what this life can do. Rather, fear the one who has the power to destroy both the body and the soul in hell. 
Why fear? Why be anxious? If we understand what prophecy is really all about, we'll not worry. This is a good definition of prophecy. It's worth remembering. Perhaps you want to write it down. Prophecy is history that God sees before it happens. Prophecy is history God sees before it happens. And prophecy is just as unchangeable as past history. When we read the prophecy of Isaiah about the kingdom, when we turn to Revelation and see the era of the kingdom, we don't need to wonder about it. It's guaranteed. John says in his revelation, I saw it happen. And Isaiah says in verse 7, the last phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. The zeal of the Lord will perform it. His is the only kingdom. This is the ministry of Christ. Christ's ministry, if you will examine these things in this passage, his ministry is designed to meet all of our needs. He is the only hope. He is the only light, and without light there is no life. He is the only salvation. His is the only victory. And his is the only kingdom. God grant that we may live within the joys of his ministry in an awareness that we have met the enemy and he is ours, in an awareness that all things whatsoever we ask in faith, believing, we shall receive, in an awareness that God knows all of the things we need and that while we speak, he will hear and before we ask, he will answer. What do you need? You may find it in the ministry of Christ. Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you that all that we need can be found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I stand in awe and wonder when I consider what you did in Jesus. Lord, I stand in awe when I read his life story written centuries before he came on the scene. And Lord, I realize in my mind that just as surely as all the prophecies about Jesus came true, everything else you've said will come true. And I ask, Lord, that that assurance might make its journey from our head to our hearts. that we might have a fresh vision of all that you are for all that we need. And that we might live one day at a time on the basis of fact that you are victorious. Great shepherd, meet all of our needs. Heal all of our hurts. Forgive all of our sins and continue to make us more every day in the likeness of Christ.
For I pray in His name. Amen.